and welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on today's episode, Inez Stepman joins us to wade into the conversation of critical race theory, this month's Independent Women's Forum Policy Focus. She'll explain the basic tenets of CRT, break down the confusion that surrounds it, and explains why this unpopular worldview has gained a home in academia. But before we bring her on, a little bit more about Inez. Inez Stepman is a senior policy analyst at IWF with a decade of experience in education policy. She is a Lincoln Fellow with the Claremont Institute and a senior contributor to The Federalist. Her work has additionally appeared in outlets such as USA Today, Newsweek, and The New York Post. And she has made appearances on Fox News, PBS, C-SPAN, and NPR. And we are so glad to have her here today. Inez, thank you for joining She Thinks. It's great to be here, Beverly. Thanks for having me. Now, you had the fun task of doing the policy focus on critical race theory, which is a a very hard issue, one that's being discussed quite a bit. And I thought we would just start by having you define what critical race theory is. So we've heard a lot of conflicting definitions of it. What is your definition? Um, I think it comes down to a a few basic premises. Um, I think the most important of those premises is that America is systemically racist, and that systemically is doing a lot of work. I don't think uh, that there are very many people left in the United States who would say that racism doesn't exist um, in America or, for that matter, anywhere else around the world. Um, but, but the premise of critical race theory is that the American system and, the, in fact, the entire Western Enlightenment uh, tradition from which the American system springs, that itself Um, is based on and built on pervasive racism. um, And that racism really can't be eradicated from those institutions. It's baked in to all of um, of our institutions, which is why you'll hear uh, various critiques from critical race theorists of everything from private property to the three branches of government to the composition of the Senate, right, or the Electoral College. Um, You'll hear critiques about the nuclear family um, perpetuating systemically perpetuating racism, right? So um, the idea is that all of the institutions that shape both our political and private life here in the United States are just irredeemably pervaded with racism. And you can see why, therefore, if you want to call yourself an anti-racist, you have to essentially hold revolutionary uh, goals, right? You want to completely overturn those institutions. But the other, I think, important tenets um, of critical race theory are that no real progress has been made, right? Um, we haven't proceeded towards a more perfect union or towards the ideals that Jefferson uh, you know, wrote down in our declaration. Um, progress is a myth and all that's happened is racism has been subhumed or gone underground or been um, you know, uh, sort of uh, obscured by supposedly neutral institutions. Um, critical race theory also has a, um, you know, a preference for collective equity over individual equality. Um, They're looking at uh, differences between groups, collective groups of people, um, and and the individual doesn't matter nearly as much as it would in, in, let's say, a more traditional American outlook. Um, And then finally, race essentialism, right? Racial identity is, is, to the critical race theorist, the primary way Uh, that a person understands and experiences the world, right? Um, Whereas I think some of us might say race is probably, you know, one of many, many, many different ways that you can experience the world. We have, you know, plenty of human experience that is common uh, between the races. Uh, Critical race theory really hones in on race as something 
um, not only just a fact of life, but an essential part of the way that a human being experiences his country, his world, and his life. Um, and, and I think all of those tenets are, are quite pernicious, although I would note that it's, it's not that important. I think it's important to understand what critical race theory is, um, but it's important not to get sucked into an academic debate about, you know, Herbert Marcuse, or, you know, what, what's the relationship of critical race theory to Marxism, right? And um, these kinds of academic debates are important and interesting. But at the end of the day, I think what's really much more important is to, to point to the implementation of critical race theory in our schools, in our government agencies, in our corporations, and say, are you okay with this? Whatever you want to call it, are you okay with third graders being uh, split up by racial group and assigned a ranking in terms of their, their privilege and power. Are you okay with that? I don't care what you call it. Um, I think we, we will probably get further that way than being sucked in to this like endless debate about what is critical race theory? You know, what is a different intellectual strain? Is it academic? Is it, uh, has it left the academy? All of these things are very interesting questions, but at the end of the day, what's important is how it's being implemented. And I think the majority of Americans are, are quite unhappy with seeing it implemented in our institutions and education centers. And I think one of the interesting aspects of this is I would say decades ago, even maybe even as recent as five, 10 years ago, there was this idea that if being colorblind was a good thing, that to not see color, to quote Martin Luther King, content of character more than color of the skin. But that has now moved into you know, it's offensive if you see things in a colorblind way that we actually need to see color. Where where did that, I should say, where and why did that change happen? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it goes back to um, that first principle of critical race theory, right? The, the idea that our institutions are themselves, even these new institutions that seem on their face to be racially neutral, right? The idea that we have three branches of government, that, um, you know, we've, we have limitations on the government from the Constitution, uh, the entire American system to the critical race theorists, this is all just a cover for a racial hierarchy, right? Um, and, and that's why you see that colorblind ideal uh, that, that a lot of us thought, you know, we were moving towards in the 80s or 90s uh, become essentially a dirty word to, um, you know, to folks who uh, would identify themselves as proponents of CRT, right? Um, because they, their argument would be, that colorblindness um, is is simply an excuse uh, to to cover up the existing racial hierarchies. What they would say is that your race really matters in America, and it matters for how you experience the world. And therefore, this colorblindness um, is is not an ideal. It's just one more cover over the racial hierarchies uh, that are existent in America. I I actually think the opposite. Obviously, um, I think it's a very difficult project that that America has always taken on um, has always been a multi-ethnic republic um, and, and there's a reason that our our motto is e pluribus unum right out of many one um, that's a very tall order we have people in America from all over the world every country in the world every language virtually um, that has been spoken in the world has been spoken in this country at some point um, we have people of different faiths. We have people of radically different experiences and backgrounds. It's always going to be a challenge and a strength for us to try to find what all of these people have in common and try to integrate them into what might be called the American way. Right. Um, and, and so <laughs> 
sometimes I wonder uh, if some of these critical race theory folks, um, if they really believe what they're saying about the, the virulency of, of supposed white supremacy in 2021 in America, um, and, and, and whether if they spent some considerable time outside of this country, they, they, they might come to different conclusions about the tolerance levels of Americans towards other Americans who may not look like them, may, may come from different backgrounds. I mean, to, in my experience, this country is among the least racist countries on the planet. That's not to say that racism doesn't exist in the United States, but that we have actually made an enormous amount of progress towards those ideals that are enshrined in our declaration towards the equality of man, towards treating people on, on the basis of the content of their character and not the color of their skin. Um, and, and, but it, it, it's deeper than just saying we haven't fully lived up to those ideas. A critical race theorist says those ideas are not worthwhile to begin with. They're just covers for racial hierarchy in and of themselves. Colorblindness is a cover for that. And therefore, not only are they not something to strive towards, they're actually an act of, of, of um, you know, perpetuating what they would say a racial hierarchy or white supremacy. Um, and, and so that's, I think that's the impasse in which we find ourselves. There's no way to really satisfy the critical race theorist. There's no progress that'll satisfy a critical race theorist in terms of, of within the existing system. The system itself has to be you know, overturned or destroyed. That's what makes them a revolutionary movement rather than uh, just a, a um, political block with certain policy demands. Well, one critical race theorist, Ibram X. Kendi, seemed to backtrack some on what has been language of those who are promoting this theory. There was whether or not critical race theory says every white person is a racist. And he said that those are who are accusing his perspective of that uh, perspective of that are based on things that are made up definitions and descriptors and do not accurately reflect critical race theory. What do you say to that line that he claims to that narrative that critical race theory doesn't say every white person is a racist? Um, I think he's just splitting hairs there. Uh, what critical race theory and what he, his own writings um, he, he's uh, endorsed in his own writings has been uh, that every white person necessarily participates and furthers structures of white supremacy uh, in the United States. And that's by supporting things that, again, you know, even 20 years ago would have been considered uh, neutral or colorblind, right? So, um, you know, by, by supporting the American Constitution, by supporting um, the, the system of government that we have in this country, um, th that his argument has been that that supports white supremacy. And that's, that's so I think it's a bit of a dodge. Um, I think what they're trying to say there is that they're trying to separate the idea of, of that most Americans have of racism as as essentially a sin of the heart, right? As judging someone by the color of their skin rather than the content of their character, prejudging someone before you know them, assuming certain you know, negative stereotypes about a person because of their racial background. That's what the average American thinks racism is. Uh, but they want to move away from that because, frankly, that kind of racism is, is a very small problem in America, especially compared to what, what it was, let's say, 50, 60 years ago. Um, so they want to move away from that individual definition of racism as, as prejudice or ill will um, or, or assuming negative characteristics about a person uh, based on their, on their race. They want to move away from the individual definition and talk then only about systems and talk about why the systems themselves perpetuate racial inequity. 
Um, and and that's I think it's it's the dodge because they want to make uh, opponents they they want to make you feel like you're on your heels. They want you to feel like oh I you know I'm not a racist uh, and, and that 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 just making that statement is is a statement of white fragility. It's um you know a defensive statement, right? Um, and 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 then they have you in their their uh, trap because just disagreeing with them about the nature of systemic racism in America makes you a, a um, you know, somebody who has a white fragility or, or um, is, is responding uh, in a defensive or emotional way uh, by, by essentially declaring themselves not personally racist. I think that that's, that's really um, the, the kind of jujitsu that is intellectually dishonest and, and unfair in terms of, of, you know, citizens of a country discussing what are, is the best way to move forward with a country as I said, that is as diverse as ours, it's, it's a dodge and an unfair intellectual tactic to tell somebody, well, if you agree with me that America's racist, then America's racist. But if you disagree with me that America is racist, then you are just being defensive and exhibiting white fragility. And that proves that America is racist, right? There's, it's, it's unfalsifiable. Yeah, and it's uh, it's an argument that no person can win because no matter what you say, there's a wrong answer to it. Um, and so my question to you, you talked about this being the application. The application is what's really concerning more than let's get into the theory and what is how did it begin and all of those things, which is a great intellectual exercise. But it matters as far as what is being taught specifically in our schools. And so how did critical race theory first get introduced into K-12 education, and has it been their goal for this to be under the radar and to be teaching our children this without parents knowing? And was it just COVID and parents be more aware of what their children were being taught that really unearthed what's been going on for a long time? Yeah, I think it's important to realize this is just the the capstone. Um, critical race theory is the capstone on narratives that have been embedded in the K-12 system and that have come to the K-12 system from the academy, from the university, um, really for decades now. Um, and and th- those ideas were perhaps are perhaps more radical now than they were three years ago. Um, and I do think that it was a huge turning point um, for a lot of parents when when they had their kids at home and they were essentially, as uh, my friend Mary Catherine Ham calls it, they were Zoom butlering um, for <laughs> for their kids while their yeah. kids were were doing school over Zoom. That was for the, for many parents the first time they actually heard what the curriculum, um, you know, that their their local public school was actually teaching their kids. Right? They, they were listening to their ten or eleven year old children being told that they are part of systems of oppression, having to uh, you know identify themselves as oppressor oppressor. They were watching as you know affinity groups were created. Um, which means that that students were split into racial groups, which I thought we were done with, uh, you know, since we, we passed the Civil Rights Act. Um, but in any case, this was the first real, like, in-your-face interaction because pu- the public schools do a very, very good job of actually hiding what it is that they teach kids all day. You would think that it would be a very simple thing to, uh, you know, pull a lesson plan, for example. The reality is that it, more often than not, it requires a series of FOIA requests. It requires, you know, um, a, a lot of, of effort. Some, in some schools, you have to come at a particular time of the day that's in the middle of the workday in order to see, um, you know, the, the lesson plan for the upcoming year. Uh, they, they, they do a lot of things to, to make it difficult for parents to actually 
you know, actually read and see what their kids are doing. And because of COVID and because of Zoom school, all of a sudden parents were, you know, able to break through all of those layers of bureaucracy and really just like sit next to their kids and see what they were learning. So I, I think you can't, um, you can't underestimate how important that was. Um, but the reality is that in our education system, in the K-12 system, um, these narratives, whether it's it's formally critical race theory or similar narratives or similar iterations, things like the 1619 Project, um, or or just generally what I would frankly call anti-American narratives, the idea that that America um, is is a bad and racist country. Um, this has been going on for a long time, and to use the favorite word of the left and critical race theorists, it's systemic, right? Um, at this point, if you are a teacher in the public school. You have gone to a, a um, you know, school of ed at one of our universities that essentially taught critical race theory and taught you to look at teaching through the lens of critical race theory. Your teacher trainings um, are often done with through the lens of critical race theory. The national teachers unions endorse lessons in critical race theory, both for students and for teachers. Um, and, you know, your your district, your um your, your principal, almost everybody, even the bureaucrats working in the district office, has all been through this sort of lens, even if they called it something other than critical race theory. So it truly is pervasive in the system, which is not to say that there aren't teachers who oppose it, but, but in the system, it is kind of the default. This lens is the default that we have been teaching young Americans through um, for, I would say, at least a decade, probably closer to two decades. And that has enormous negative consequences. And you can see um, in, in surveys and polls of my generation, the millennials and then Gen Z after us, um, you can see how fewer and fewer young Americans identify as proud of their country, as patriots, um, as, as, as you know, really wanting to be that next generation of the American experiment. And you can see those numbers slide down and down and down over time. That's not an accident. It's the narrative that's being taught in our schools. Well, before we continue the conversation, I'd like to take a moment to highlight IWF's Champion Women Profile Series, which focuses on women across the country and world that are accomplishing amazing things. The media too often ignores their stories, but we don't. We celebrate them and bring their stories to you. Our current profile is Sarah Frey, entrepreneur and author of the upcoming book, The Growing Time. To check out her story, do go to IWF.org to see why she's this week's Champion Woman. And as I want to remind our listeners that they can read your policy paper by going to IWF.org. And I want to call out an excerpt that you put in this. And I thought this was really interesting. And it, it does harken back to what you were just saying. And here is the excerpt. It says, while the radical worldview of CRT has relatively few adherents among Americans of all races, it has found a welcome home in America's institutions. And you list those. It's not just academia, which we discussed. It's government. It's private corporations. It's the entire entire culture. How did something that is unpopular, and if you could speak to how unpopular it is, how did it become this pervasive thing? Yeah, I mean, every every survey, first of all, shows that um, to the extent that Americans know what critical race theory is, they oppose it. Um, and, and that's true uh, of Americans of various racial backgrounds, right? This, this, this isn't a, a bottom-up phenomenon. It really is a top-down phenomenon from the academy, then into the K-12 system, um, and then ultimately, as the academy and the K-12 system graduate more and more young, woke Americans, those those um, folks are moving into all the other institutions. Right. So 
um, that the the folks who are now um, you know in middle management and, and pushing upwards, millennials, right, are about the oldest millennials are about forty now. Um, that means that people who are working in the boardrooms, in the newsrooms, um, in in government agencies, right, in Hollywood production companies, those people have from basically from uh, you know the, a very young age been taught to view America through this lens. And, and that has enormous institutional consequences. So we've seen, for example, um, that there's been, there's been kind of a, a types of revolutions happening in the already left-wing newsrooms, right? So we have standard bearer liberal papers, right? Like the New York Times, and the Washington Post. What they're seeing is that their younger staff, their staff who's, let's say, you know, uh, 22 through 35, right? Um, that those uh, young journalists that they've hired have a very different view, for example, of, of objectivity of the press, of the duties of the journalists, um, of, of, of free speech and the tradition of free speech and free press in America than the folks who are older and perhaps skipped that indoctrination um, in public schools, right? Um, same thing in, in corporations. They're finding that their young talent overwhelmingly has this perspective and is urging management, um, you know, for example, to pay thousands of dollars to people like Ibram X. Kendi to come and as consultants and, and give anti-racism training to their employees, right? Um, and, and so there, what's happening is that these institutions that once uh, you know, adhered to American principles like freedom of speech, like, you know, whether they were on the, the left or the right, right, um, politically speaking, adhered to basic small L liberal bedrock principles like the freedom of speech, like the, you know, um, uh, respecting the Bill of Rights, right, like like the idea that the press is, is supposed to report the truth and hold people in power and the government accountable equally. Um, those kinds of ideas are, are now out of fashion with everybody under 35. And as those folks gain more power in those institutions, they're using the, those institutions to then go ahead and perpetuate this, what is ultimately an elite phenomenon, right? Um, th this, when, when this um, ideology, for example, captures Twitter, the, the company now I'm talking about, um, you know, Twitter just donated $10 million to uh, the, the academic center headed by Abram X. Kendi, right? So they throw in their money, their ability to censor uh, the, the public public space and public sphere and where a lot of conversation takes place. That's an enormous amount of power that's now being used in service of this ideology, um, which is why I think it's going to require an, an, a sustained and serious effort from the majority that opposes critical race theory it's going to, to take getting serious and, and over a long period of time about pushing these ideas out of these institutions. It's going to require us to deal with, and I'm, I'm not going to go into all the debates of how, because it's, it could be a, an entire podcast on that, um, but it will require us to confront woke capital in this country and the woke culture within powerful corporations. It's going to require on the education space, it's going to require systemic moves, like thinking about whether it's worth it for the American taxpayer to fund student loans to the tune of $1.7 trillion uh, to go to universities that then teach this critical race theory worldview. Um, 
it's going to ha- take us thinking about whether we we really ought to be funneling some, a, a, a much bigger even um, sum of money because it's about 800 billion per year every year that we pay for K-12 education, that instead of going directly to families so that they might be able to choose whether they want a school that teaches critical race theory or a school that doesn't teach critical race theory or teaches a more traditional American curriculum, um, instead of going to the family to make that choice right now, that $800 billion goes overwhelmingly directly to districts. And we're going to have to look at that. We're going to have to think about this as a, a prolonged battle because there, even if we win tomorrow, quote unquote, and we push this ideology out of the education system, we're still going to have millions and millions of Americans between the age of, let's say, 20 and, and 35 who have totally bought in to this ideology. And we're going to have to think about how to deal with that and, and how um, we can try to preserve the American system for, for those who are coming after us, for our children and our children's children, because I, I truly believe, especially as you know, my, my parents came from somewhere else, um, they came from po- communist Poland. I, I, I don't want to see this country you know, uh, become unexceptional. All of the things that the critical race theorists are worried about in America are, and, and want America's, Americans to self-flagellate for, right, are, are history with slavery, our history with discrimination and Jim Crow, all of those things are real, um, but they're unremarkable in the history of the world. What's remarkable isn't that America has, you know, its sins and black marks and has, has uh, you know, treated people horribly. Um, what's remarkable is that America uh, has created the amount of liberty and prosperity and freedom that it has. And the fact that we have been able to take people from all over the world um, and, and make them a part of this American, great American experiment where we are progressing towards a more perfect union, where we are progressing towards living up to the ideals that are, are you know, etched in our declaration. That's the, the exceptional and remarkable thing, not the fact that right. there have been mistakes and terrible things uh, in this country in the past. Yeah. So in closing, I think this is one of the things that has been encouraging to me and I and to hopefully to anyone else who's been seeing what's been happening with critical race theory and for people who are concerned about the future of our country. I've been encouraged to see how many people have spoken against it, especially when it comes to parents speaking up in board meetings. And I find it encouraging because they are called horrible things. They are called racist, among other things, for speaking up. And yet we have Americans across this country who are willing to take on public shame by a certain group of people in order to protect their kids. So when you see average Americans speaking up across this country and parents who probably had no desire to be confrontational, but for the sake of their children, they're going to speak up. Do you think that there is a ground swelling movement among Americans of all races who feel like, you know what, for the sake of my kids, I'm going to speak up. And are you encouraged by that? I'm, I'm enormously encouraged by it. Um, it, 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 yeah, it's, it's wonderful to see people go to school board meetings and speak up. It's wonderful to see people, you know, um, state publicly, which what privately they, they were, uh, you know, they were afraid to say publicly, but they were saying in private for quite some time, you know, uh, we have a real problem with the chilling of free speech in this country. Um, and, and I hate the phrase cancel culture, but for lack of a better phrase, right. People are afraid to share even the most, you know, moderate and and um, well reasoned of, of beliefs that are very common in this country, 
But I, I believe that the polls are around 50 percent of Democrats are afraid to share their their political beliefs publicly, about 60 percent of independents and about 75 percent of Republicans are. So that's the the majority of the country um, is is afraid to speak out because they will be called those nasty names. Right. And I think it's it's just very important to realize that when they call you a racist or a bigot or a white supremacist, their definitions of those words, the critical race theorist definition of those words couldn't be further from the average American. So in, in my view, we just need to be um, brave and stop wo- be worrying about being called those names because they might as well be calling you calling you purple. It, it's such a different definition um, than, than what I think the average American thinks of when he thinks of racism, for example, or white supremacy, right? We think about the Klan, not about somebody who supports the Bill of Rights and the, you know, the Constitution. Um, so... I, I think we have to stop being afraid, which is I am fully aware. It's easy for me to say I work for this wonderful organization, the Independent Women's Forum, um, and, and I'm able to come on to podcasts like this one and talk with you, Beverly. Um, so I, I have the freedom in my work to, to say these things. And I, I realize that it's much easier for you and I to speak about these things right. than, for example, someone whose whose job might hinge on the line. But at the end of the day, there is no substitute for courage. And there are a lot more people who think like you out there who are afraid to say anything and who will speak up if you're the first one to step forward. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think the fact not only that we have this platform to speak on these issues, but we have the support from each other and our colleagues. And it's not going to impact our work. We know that we have a job and we're able to speak freely, that we're in a, a very safe environment to be able to speak out these speak about these issues. But there are a lot of Americans who do take great risks, including employment, including being shunned by people that know them in order to speak up, but we encourage people to continue to do that. And if you want more information on this really important policy focus on critical race theory, again, go to IWF.org. Inez not only details more of what she talked about today, the tenets of CRT, but also goes into more detail on what each of us can do to stop it. So Inez, thank you so much for working on this policy focus and for explaining it so well in our conversation today. Thank you so much for having me, Beverly. And thank you for joining us. Before you go, Independent Women's Forum does want you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. And investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. Please consider making a small donation to IWF by visiting iwf.org backslash donate. That is iwf.org backslash donate. And last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. It does help. Also, we'd love it if you shared this episode and let your friends know where they can find more She Thinks episodes. From all of us here at Independent Women's Forum, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.